Praise the Lord. It is good to be here with you worshiping tonight. I really hope you dug into the, what the Spirit was doing here a little bit a while ago. Thank you, Pastor Ray. And, and uh, I got a couple of texts online while we were worshiping, and they just said, man, we love the boy band. You know, we love, we love the boy band. Thought that was funny. So all the online audience, thank you for sending in those funny, those funny thoughts. We are so happy you're here. Welcome home, King of Kings. Welcome home, family. You heard a lot of great announcements about what we're doing as a community and as a congregation. Please jump in all the way. The kingdom of God is never about a little bit. It's about all the way. You go all the way in in marriage with someone, right? Hot or cold. Give them a real ring, not half a ring. Come on, jump in and see what God's doing. We welcome you here from wherever you're from today, including all of you watching online tonight, King's Community Live, Facebook Live, YouTube, all the other platforms. Welcome to King of Kings here in Jerusalem. What a great day to be here with you. We have some very honored guests I want to take a look at and just welcome them for a moment. Um, Pastor Rene Terranova from Restoration's uh, International Ministry is here from Brazil, brought a group together. Thank you so much for being here, Pastor. We honor you. We thank you for your, your continued commitment in prayer and, and support of the congregation and the ministry here at King of Kings as well. We have a group from Hong Kong joining us today, so welcome those from Hong Kong. I see you waving. Thank you so much. We bless you. Shalom to all of you. Hag Sameach as well. Um, I'm going to wait another minute until he gets back so I can honor him. Uh, there's another pastor in the house tonight, but he's, he stepped out with one of his children. But there, thank you. You're excited for him to come back, just like I am. Wonderful. Well, then I want to hear that same enthusiasm when he gets back in the room. Keep it rolling. Listen, we've got a, a great crowd online tonight as well. And I'm going to just run through them really quickly. But before I do, just want to say, hey, thanks for everybody who helped us have what a great time last Sunday night. For those of you that didn't hear about this or didn't stay, I'm not going to say shame on you. I'm not going to say that. I could say it, but I'm not going to say it. After the service, when the Holy Spirit was completely done with everything he wanted to do, trust me, we made sure he was finished we waited patiently, but when he was finished, we had sufganyot and latkes and hot drinks outside in the lobby, but in here on the big screen, we played the finals of the World Cup, and what a party we had in here. It was a lot of fun, so let me just say to those watching online, you know, Argentina, congratulations, Mazel Tov, congratulations, Kolokovod, and those of you watching from France, we are sorry. Um, we pray at kkcj.org if you're feeling anything that you need prayer for there. But listen, Argentina, Austria, Brazil, Canada, Finland, France, Germany, India, Israel, Malaysia, Philippines, Poland, Singapore, Slovakia, South Africa, Switzerland, Taiwan, USA, UK, and many more. Welcome to King of Kings tonight. Glad you're here. All right, grab your Bibles. It's going to be a fun night tonight. Grab your Bibles. You're going to want to be in the book of Luke have your finger there. We're going to dance around a little bit in the book of Luke uh, amongst many other passages tonight. But you've joined us on what an exciting day. Um, we're in the middle of a series that we call We Are the Temple. And from 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where it says that you are the temple of God. Your body is not your own. Therefore, be careful how you live. And we've been in that series and we've been thinking and discussing 
If we, in fact, are the temple of God, then we better learn a little bit more about the temple. If we're the temple of God, we better make sure we know what's in the temple, all of the articles, and what they're used for. And so over the past few weeks, we've been going over different parts of the temple and the tabernacle. Then we've been going over different articles of the tabernacle and and the temple as well. Uh, Today, we're going to make a little bit of a connection to that because I want to look at something I'm calling the transfer of power. And it's going to be a quick survey through the text of the various times that Yeshua himself was interacting with the temple and the different lessons and stories that we get from that. Now, today's a special day, as I mentioned. You've got Hanukkah going on. We're going to light the candles. We're going to say the blessings right at the end of the service tonight. Uh, Blessings to all of you that celebrate Hanukkah with us here in Israel and around the world. Blessings to many of you celebrating Christmas today as well, the birth of the Messiah, whenever you think that is. Praise the Lord. Maybe there's other holidays I don't know about that are going on. But let's focus on Yeshua today, shall we? So let's begin here. Your finger is going to stay in Luke. You don't have to chase me. We're going to put some of the scriptures on the board. I'm going to start here in Matthew chapter 2, but you stay in Luke. It says, after Yeshua was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Well, his birth being in Bethlehem, it fulfills the prophecy found in Micah chapter five, verse two and four. I'll read it to you. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. So when Matthew is quoting about Yeshua being born in Bethlehem, it's not just a newsflash, hey, he was born in Bethlehem. It's not just a fact. It's a fact based on a prophecy from Micah. Okay, he's reminding us of this prophetic word. Now, of course, the more you put together the pieces of the birth story of the Messiah, you get some of the connected pieces that Vivian referenced. Thank you, Vivian, for a wonderful parsha reading today. And, and she mentioned how different parts of the year here at King of Kings, we highlight the birth of the Lord. And you might say, well, why do you do that? Well, because we don't know exactly when he was born, but there are different parts of the year that highlight different things. For instance, we know that he was born primarily outside in a temporary shelter, and that can give you a link to Sukkot. He was born during a Roman census, which is not in the winter, giving you some other clues There's a timing of his uncle's Zechariah's shift in the temple. There's a timing with his aunt Elizabeth's pregnancy, his own mother's pregnancy after that. There's a little bit of a timeline. So some of us look at Sukkot as a possible birth time of the Lord Yeshua. But even if you connect with Sukkot as the possible birth of Yeshua, then we have a great time of year right now where it could be the miraculous conception of Yeshua. So if you're celebrating the birth 
in Sukkot, then today we get to celebrate the conception, which is going to have a lot of relevance to today's message. Right? Because the miracle didn't start only at his birth. The miracle goes all the way back to the conception. Right? And especially in Jewish culture, where we believe life happens at conception. Amen? I did some interesting reading uh, this week, just some historical reading. And certainly there's lots of opinions that exist. And here's what we always say at King of Kings, and you can go back in the archives. We've got lots of sermons about symbolism and prophetic connections to the birth of the Lord and when that could be, whether you celebrate it December 25th. Some, some of us uh, and the folks in the audience might celebrate that on January the 6th. That's a tradition. Some might think it's Passover. Some look at Sukkot. But look at this. It says two centuries after the birth happened. So this is 200 AD. You with me? Ish? Can I use that Hebrew word? If you don't know what that word means, watch my hand. That, you know, when you're not exactly sure, you throw an ish on it, do that with your hand. Very Jewish, very Israeli. You can get away with a lot with that. 200, you know, AD-ish. One of the church fathers, Clement, Clement of Alexandria, he writes down and he discusses the dating of the master's birth. Remember, this is in 200 AD. But in his writing, he did not mention December 25th, nor did he mention January 6th at all. Instead, Clement reported in one of his earliest known traditions corresponding to the birth of the Messiah, he had the date of April 20th on our civil calendar or another tradition corresponding to May 20th. By the middle of the 4th century, however, the Roman church had begun to honor December 25th, while other churches in the East, Asia Minor, and Egypt observed Yeshua's birth on January 6th. So it's all, I mean, it's everywhere. It's like, hey man, let's do one in January. Let's do it. Let's have a good party about his birth in April. Why not? Throw it in there. May, sure. Let's do May. Let's do Sukkot, September. Absolutely. That's a great month for it. What about December? Why not? Throw it in there. We'll package it with the miraculous conception. What does it mean? It means we're so grateful that the Lord came to earth. That's what that means to us. Interestingly, also, here's another nugget. I may find this more interesting than you find it. From the Encyclopedia Britannica, speaking of the festival of the Epiphany, right? There's a, some traditions really focus on that about January the 6th. It says the festival this being the epiphany, originated in the Eastern church where it, at first it included the commemoration of the birth of the Messiah, January 6th. In Rome, by 354 AD, the Messiah's birth was being celebrated on December 25th, what we now call Christmas. And later in the fourth century, the church in Rome began celebrating the epiphany and kept it on January the 6th. In the Western church, the festival primarily commemorates the visit by the Magi to the infant baby Yeshua. I put Yeshua, they said Jesus, which is seen as evidence that the Messiah was the Jewish Messiah and that he also came for the salvation of the Gentiles. In the West, the evening preceding the Epiphany is called the Twelfth Night. Therefore, the time between December 25th and January 6th is now known as the 12 Days of Christmas. Isn't that interesting? So if you've ever sang that song, you're connecting with two different traditions about the Messiah's birth 
in the celebration of the festival of Epiphany, and you're like, I'm going to jump in. Sure, why not? Sounds fun. So wherever you land on that, praise the Lord. And we always want to include that even though we, we love to talk about the history and what could be in the puzzle pieces, since we, the, the word of God does not give us 100% certainty, we will never say with 100% certainty. Okay, we're going to stay humble and flexible on that. Amen. But I do want to look at tonight the different times that Yeshua interacted with the temple of his day. And I want to first start with establishing that his parents, his earthly parents, Joseph, Yosef, or Miriam, Mary, they were very devout followers of the word of God. They kept the law very stringently. It says in Matthew chapter 1, 19, because Joseph, Miriam's husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. What does that mean? It means that he was a very faithful to the law Jew, right? He was chosen by God to father this family on earth, and he was a very devout religious Jew. Yeshua did not grow up in a secular Jewish home. He grew up in a religious home. His uncle was a, one of the priests on duty. His cousin John was in line to be one of the next priests, but when he found the corruption of the temple, he rejected that. He connected himself a little bit more with the Essenian group in the desert. And his father and mother, Joseph and Miriam, they were very devout to the law. Matthew recounts that Yeshua's parents were warned after the birth not to go home. Listen to Matthew chapter 2, 13. It says, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Now, many times you might read that verse and just assume that Yeshua and his family immediately went straight to Egypt after the birth, Right? That's the way it kind of feels like from Matthew's account. Here come the magi, here come the shepherds, there's the star, there's the wise men giving gifts. Here it is. Yeshua was born. There's the great prophecies over him. And immediately, Joseph in a dream gets this message from the Lord and says, time to go to Egypt. Guys, get up. We got to go. Sometimes it feels like that's how it reads. But Luke chapter 2 kind of gives us a different impression and that's why your finger is in the book of Luke, our main text tonight. Look at this, Luke chapter 2, 22. Luke chapter 2, verse 22. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Miriam took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Ah, Luke seems to think that when there was the birth, that because Joseph and Miriam were devout to the law, that they first went through the purification rites as instructed in the law of Moses. So where is Luke quoting from? Leviticus chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, say to the Israelites, a woman who becomes pregnant and gives birth to a son will be ceremonially unclean for seven days, just as she is unclean during her monthly cycle. But on the eighth day, the boy is to be circumcised. Then the woman must wait 33 days 
to be purified from her bleeding. She must not touch anything sacred or go to the sanctuary until the days of her purification are over. He continues in verse 6. When the days of her purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a year-old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a scent offering. So what that means, friends, is this. Yeshua's first encounter at the temple would have been when he was 41 days old, before going to Egypt. So it was a little bit of a risk there, of course, but certainly if the Lord had given Joseph the, the foresight to say, hey, be careful here, don't go home. Remember what it said. It said, don't go home. Well, Jerusalem wasn't home for them. So they, they, all the puzzle pieces could potentially still fit. There's the birth in Bethlehem. Don't go home, so don't go straight to Nazareth. Go to Jerusalem, fulfill the purification rites because you're a devout follower of the law of Moses. And then once that's fulfilled, get out of there. Still don't go home. Go to Egypt. And then you're in Egypt for a couple of years before you go home to Nazareth where he's raised up and another prophecy is fulfilled that he will be called a Nazarene. It says in Luke chapter 2, 27, what I think could, could be seen as another confirmation of this because it talks about this elderly gentleman named Simeon who is in the temple praying for the restoration of Israel, praying for the Messiah to come. And in Luke 2, 27, it says, moved by the Spirit, Simeon went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child, Yeshua, to do for him what the custom of the law required, day 41, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Isn't that amazing? You can put all those puzzle pieces together, and it still fits that there was this miraculous conception, this miraculous birth, the warning of the angel, so we don't go home. We actually go to the temple in Jerusalem, fulfill the law. We kept all of the law. You know what would have been an accusation against Yeshua had his parents not done that? The accusation would have been that he was not a righteous Jew. So I think it's very important that his parents did this and that we don't just assume from Matthew's account that after the birth, we immediately went to Egypt. No, we couldn't. That leaves a deficit in Yeshua's obedience and the following of the law of Moses from his parents. But if you can see all of the puzzle pieces through Luke's eyes, you can tell that you can have birth in Bethlehem, go to Jerusalem, fulfill the law, everything's kosher, then go to Egypt, be safe, and later come back to home in Nazareth. Isn't God good? And he directs us. So that's the first time we see Yeshua in the temple around day 41. But we also see Yeshua and his family are regular visitors to the temple. The temple is not foreign to Yeshua or his family. Luke chapter 2, verse 41. It says, every year Yeshua's parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. So he grows up always being in the temple. He's not a stranger to the temple. His parents are faithful Jewish followers of the law of Moses. And so he grows up in that faithful home. He himself, a faithful Jew. We see Yeshua once again as a young man now, approximately the bar mitzvah age. Luke chapter 2, 42. This is his second known encounter. 
beyond the 41-day purification. Then he's in the temple every year with his parents for Passover, right? But now comes another individual action at the temple when he's about bar mitzvah age. It says in the text, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, this is the time and the story you might already know about. That what happens in this story is Yeshua is there with his family, and the family is there with a the larger caravan of friends. They fulfill all of the Passover requirements as they normally do, and then the caravan packs up and they all leave together. And for an entire day, an entire day, Yeshua's parents left thinking he was somewhere in the caravan. Now, before you start to judge Yeshua's parents, you don't call social services on them. Give them, a, give them a minute. It could have been a big caravan because that was a much safer way to travel for the pilgrim, pilgrimage festivals. You don't travel as one family. It's too hard. There's too many raiders and thieves. You, you travel as a big unit, lots of families. So, okay, so he had a sleepover in somebody else's cart. Maybe that was what happened, or at least what they thought happened. But it did take him a full day. You know, let's just be honest. Anybody in the room, raise your hand if you've ever lost your kids. Put, I'm just kidding. Put your hands down. I wouldn't want to embarrass you. I didn't think anybody would actually do that. Okay, because I saw a couple of hands, okay. I'll just tell you the story. You want to hear a story? Okay. So... When I was younger, I was pastoring a congregation in Memphis, Tennessee, in the United States. We started to have more children, and as you know, the more children you have, it's harder to keep up with them because you always have to do a head count, right? It's always a, it's a constant, how many do I have? And this particular time, I left early to go prepare for service, and my wife left later with the children. And somewhere in the day, as I was preaching and praying and, and loving on people, there was a text, apparently. See where that's going? We got any prophets in the room? Okay. There was a text telling me which child I was supposed to take home and which children she was taking home. The problem is I didn't see that text until it was far too late. I don't mean a little too late. I mean embarrassingly late. So I preach, I pray, hug, oneg, we bless. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat Tov, everybody. Okay, lock it up. Here's Pastor Chad. Lock it up. Turn the lights off. Starting to lock it up. Get in my car. I didn't come with any kids. I'm not leaving with any kids. Driving on the Zoom freeway tunes, praising the Lord. Praising the Lord. Get home. Hey, baby, what do you think about service today? What, what do you think about for lunch? Where's our child? Well, I brought home all of the children I brought to service. So what do you mean, where's our child? I texted you three times. Well, you know, I turned my phone off for the services. I'm so sorry. Let me turn it on. Okay, I left my child back at the congregation. Let me get in the car. 30-minute drive. Poor child. An hour later, of course, I've driven home 30 minutes, driven back 30 minutes, and praise the Lord. The worship leader of that day 
had forgotten something at the building, had a key. I drive back and I'm just, I'm my heart, I'm, I got police on ready. I'm like, hey, police, just get ready. I may have to call you back. I get there and, and the worship leader's sitting outside with my daughter. I pull up and he smiles. Pastor? Forget something? <laughs> yeah, I forgot. Just forgot a notebook. I wanted to come back and grab this notebook. I just forgot it. So don't ever feel bad about Yeshua's parents. If you, in the audience, online, if you've ever forgotten your children, I don't know if your story will top mine. It will probably certainly not top Yeshua's story because I only left a zip code. These guys left the whole day, came back, then they still couldn't find him, right? That's how disconnected they were from the son. Couldn't find him. We picked up the story in Luke chapter two, verse 46. After three days, hey, I felt bad after an hour. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Parents are panicked. Yeshua's right at home. He's used to the temple, he's used to the rabbis, he's used to the priests. He's actually schooling them. He's challenging them, he's defeating them with his theology and prophetic implications. They're loving it, he's loving it. I think maybe it was a bar mitzvah. I think the reason he had access to the priest is because it may have been his bar mitzvah time. You don't just have a 12-year-old running loose in the temple. That was back in the days when they spanked children. I'm guessing. That was a guess. Maybe I should not say that behind the pulpit. I'll move right over here. Watch. That was the pulpit right there. I don't know. My guess is that was back in the day when they spanked children. That's my guess. If you could stone them, probably you could spank them, right? This is what I'm thinking. I'm trying to balance it all out here. Who knows? So Yeshua was 41 days old when he went to the temple the first time as an infant for the ritual purification. Then his family went every year for Passover and probably the other feasts. But at his bar mitzvah year, he goes at Passover. When they lose him, then he connects with the priests and the rabbis there. That's his kind of second personal interaction there. Then as an adult, we read this. Now he's about 30-ish. This time, Yeshua is led to the temple by Satan. thought that was an interesting curveball. Luke chapter 4, verse 9, it says, The devil led Yeshua to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. It's another interesting passage you can study. But it's an interaction with the temple, right? So now we have him as a baby, ritual purification. We have him as a teenager, possibly for bar mitzvah, and then we have him just before his earthly ministry begins. And those are certainly not the only times he interacted with the temple. There's lots of other stories that you're very familiar with, things like the time when he overturned the money changers' tables. That was a fun one. That was, that was worth the price of the ticket that day. A lot of fun. Everybody caught that on the cameras, on the phones. They YouTube that everywhere. How about when Yeshua was teaching in the temple, he was being questioned by the chief priests and the elders. They asked him, by what authority are you doing all of these healings? Does it, you know what I mean? On one hand, does it matter? Like, 
is that really what you're going to ask me right now? Because whatever I say, you should believe, but you won't. How about the time in the temple when Yeshua was in the middle of his very important teaching and the woman caught in adultery was brought in front of him? Great story because in that story, he protects her first, then he forgives her, then he challenges her. You know, she doesn't really get off like light. She, she, she got protected, forgiven, and then sent on a mission. Go and sin no more. What a great account of Yeshua in the temple. Mentioned last week, Yeshua was in the temple for Hanukkah. This time of year, of course, it says it was Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication. It was winter. Matthew says that Yeshua healed many blind people, many lame people while Yeshua was in the temple courts. Of course, when Yeshua was arrested, he made this statement as well. Luke twenty-two fifty-three. 53, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. So I don't know what your historical picture looks like, but Yeshua was in the temple, according to himself, every day. Assuming he wasn't traveling, he was in the temple every day, right? So he's very familiar with the temple. He's very interactive with the temple. But, but, but toward the end of his earthly ministry, Yeshua was arrested at the Passover time. He was brought before the Sanhedrin. And it was during this questioning, I really want to dig in here for the last few minutes. Something theological happens on a very deep level. Matthew chapter 26, you can turn there and follow. I've been in Luke with you, but now you can turn to Matthew 26, 59. Listen to what this dialogue sounds like with the Sanhedrin. It says the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Yeshua so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and they declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So when Yeshua makes a statement like, I'm going to destroy the temple, or this temple is going to be destroyed in the passive sense, he's not saying that from a disconnected position from the temple. He's saying it from the position of, I've been in the temple every day. If you wanted to do something, you should have done it. That's my point. That from an infancy, he's been in the temple. Everyone knows him. Everyone knows his face. All the priests know him. All the rabbis know him. They had their opportunity. That was Matthew. Mark gives a similar quote in the same accusation time period with the Sanhedrin. Mark 14, 58 says this. The false witness says, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, will build another not made with human hands. You see what Mark did there? Mark had another little nugget added on to it that he heard, that he remembered. Doesn't mean Matthew was wrong. It just means Mark heard something, and that was probably Peter. By the way, you guys know that John Mark probably wrote down Peter's gospel. So it's probably Peter's memory. But he says, the temple will be destroyed. I will rebuild it not made with human hands. And then we have John. You see, John takes his own quote, much like Matthew and Mark, and he puts, 
He puts it in a very different place. Matthew and Mark take this quote about destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days. They put it at the very end of Yeshua's ministry. It's the very end. But when John quotes it, he puts it at the very beginning. John chapter two. Look how early that is. It says in John chapter two, Yeshua answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. You see, in John's account, Yeshua is responding to a threat. Did you hear the difference? In John's account, he says, go ahead, destroy this temple. I'll rebuild it. In the other accounts, they didn't quite catch that nuance. It was more passive, like, if this temple is destroyed. But in John, it's a threat that he's responding to. And it could be that it's so early in the gospel that Yeshua may have quoted this quote many times. Have you ever considered that? that it was such an important part of Yeshua's ministry that he wanted to disciple the people on, who's to say he only quoted it once? Couldn't it be possible that he quoted it at the beginning of the ministry, all throughout the ministry, and then he closed the ministry with the same quote? Hey, go ahead, destroy it. I'm gonna rebuild it in three days. Why? Because he wanted to emphasize his role as a resurrected redeemer. And maybe they didn't get it the first couple of times, so he keeps highlighting Go ahead, destroy the temple. I'll rebuild it. I'll rebuild it. I'll rebuild it. Seems to be more of a theme in his ministry. And then John gives us this last important golden nugget of this conversation. And he says in John chapter 2, verse 20 and 21, they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken about was his body. John got it. It wasn't the physical temple. It was the body of the Lord. Now, we as New Covenant believers, we got that. John got it pretty early. He's not talking about rebuilding the stones. He's talking about his body resurrecting, right? So we all get that. But then you start to think for a second, wait a second. This is a moment that we now come to understand that upon Yeshua's resurrection and the defeating of sin and death, he transferred all of the power and the authority of the temple to himself. That's what he did by that statement. Go ahead, destroy the temple. I'll rebuild it because I'm the temple. What? If you're the temple, how can you be the temple? The, the temple holds the authority of the location of God's presence. It holds the authority to give sacrifice for sin, forgiveness, and redemption. It holds that authority. Are you claiming to be God at such a level that you're now the temple itself, that you have transferred all of its authority to yourself? John got that transfer of power. John understood it was a transfer of authority. That as soon as Yeshua said, go ahead, destroy it, I'll rebuild it. And then he adds that little nugget. Remember, I'll rebuild it not made with human hands. So we know we're not talking about the physical temple. But do you also realize that he's not talking about the heavenly tabernacle either? Why? Because the heavenly tabernacle was never destroyed. So he can't be talking about rebuilding that one either. 
It has to be him. It has to be his body, and it has to be a transference of power and authority to him. He's the only one that now has the right, has the authority, has the purity, has the power to forgive sin. With that little statement. And that's why I think the statement actually repeated itself throughout his whole ministry, because it was such a crucial point for the people to understand. Hebrews chapter 9, 11 and 12 seem to indicate that this is perfectly in line. It says, but when the Messiah came as the high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. There it is again, that statement, not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by the holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. We already looked at these verses earlier in our series about the heavenly tabernacle. But I think here we see the second application. When he says, not made by human hands, he's not only talking about the heavenly tabernacle, which also happened to be not made by human hands, because that's where the final sacrifice for eternal life had to happen, right? We've talked about that. It couldn't stop only in Jerusalem. Why? Because he wasn't sacrificed in the temple. Are you following me? I know I just went really deep on some things, but listen, he wasn't sacrificed in the temple. He didn't get a chance to fulfill that requirement for the forgiveness of sin, which is why he had to go to the heavenly tabernacle, the one not made with human hands, the one not stained with human sin, to have the perfect once for all sacrifice, not made with human hands. It refers to both the earthly tabernacle and to his own body. Because why? Because now he has become the temple. He has become the temple. That's why he can make the same claim, not made with human hands, right? You see the correlation between the two statements. Remember what Mark said. Destroy this temple made with human hands. In three days, I'll build another not made with human hands. So I take us all the way back, full circle now, to not only Yeshua's birth, but to his conception. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. This is how the birth of Yeshua the Messiah came about. His mother Miriam was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. She was found to be pregnant, not with human hands. There's the correlation. This was so important for this miraculous conception to happen so that Yeshua could actually quote in front of the Sanhedrin, go ahead, destroy my body, I will resurrect it in a way not made with human hands. Why? Because that's how I got here in the first place. It was never with human hands. I wasn't conceived with human hands. I wasn't resurrected with human hands. The final sacrifice for sin in the heavenly tabernacle was in a place not made with human hands. And that's why we see such a valuable need to look at the conception and say, my goodness, Yeshua, look at what you were doing. You saw all of this. You set us up. It's, you know, it's hard not to set people up when you know the end from the beginning, right? 
And he set us up with this perfect dialogue, this perfect prophecy. Our last scripture tonight, Revelation 21, 22. As you're studying the end of the age and the age to come, the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, you're going to read this statement about the temple, the next one, right? This is what you're going to read. John says, I did not see the temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, John got that revelation very early, chapter 2. Don't forget how early he gets it, and he keeps that revelation all the way through the Gospel of John all the way into the book of Revelation. He keeps saying it and saying it and saying it. Yeshua is the temple. And where that hit the people so hard was because it was a massive transfer of power. And everybody who had the power no longer had it. You ever wonder why they sought to kill Yeshua so many times? The Bible is very clear, and it says because they were jealous of him. Why were they jealous of him? because he came down to a corrupt temple practice and he said, excuse me, I temporarily delegated this system, but it's not working the way it's supposed to because of your sin. So now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take back the authority that I delegated to the temple. I'm gonna take it back and I'm gonna put it where it belongs. I'm going to put it in myself. And that's why in the New Jerusalem, when you get there, you won't see a building temple because that one, that one didn't work for all eternity. Notice you also don't get to see the heavenly temple. It doesn't say it's quoted right there. What you get to see is Yeshua himself. Yeshua is the temple. And in this series, that's precious to us because we were called the temple. And what does he say? You are heirs of the Messiah and co-heirs of the kingdom. That means if he's the temple, we're the temple. Because we both house the presence of the Holy Spirit. What a great thing to think about. I know there's a lot more you can dive in there. Let's close with this key phrase and then go back into worship. It was crucial that the heavenly tabernacle in which Yeshua performed the once and for all sacrifice for sin, it was important that it was not made with human hands. It was equally important that his physical body not be made with human hands at his conception so that he could become the temple of God in all of its perfection. Seeing the correlation between both the heavenly tabernacle where the work was performed and him being the temple, the transferring of authority and power to himself, saying, I will now forgive your sins. Not the altar, not the bull, not the goat. I will do it. Isn't that amazing? Praise the Lord. Father, we thank you that you help us today. Sometimes these, these words are deep. They need building blocks. They need foundations. Yeshua, we thank you today and other days, but we thank you that you were willing to come off of your throne in heaven and give us the gift of your conception, your birth, 
your life, your leadership, your teachings, your sacrifice, your death, your resurrection, your ascension, your intercession. And that you performed all of this without human hands, staining it with blood, staining it with sin, staining it with our transgressions so that we could never claim any glory. And so tonight we end by saying, Yeshua, you get every ounce of glory, every piece of glory possible, you get it. Because in essence, we weren't even involved. We were only involved in the sinful side. Thank you for your work, Yeshua. We're so grateful that we get to celebrate you today and your work. Thank you, Lord. Can you stand to your feet just for a moment? Let's celebrate him for a moment. Stand to your feet. You've been sitting a while. Come on. You want the blood to flow. Can you celebrate the Lord Yeshua tonight? Can you maybe give him a little hand clap because he deserves something tonight? Hallelujah.